Welcome to Rigged Episode 11. This is the final interview with hapless former Amherst Lab Supervisor Jim Hanchett. Hanchett stumbles through his final conversation with the Attorney General's office, boldly claiming he and his colleagues didn't make stuff up when it comes to drug classification. As you will see, I think he was sadly mistaken. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 11 of the Rick Podcast. Uh, with us today, as always, is Chris Post and Ilias Rona. Uh, today, we are going to go over the end of the Jim Hanchett interview. It's just 12 quick minutes of after they broke from that last interview we did in the last episode. They came back to ask him some more questions about Class E drugs and... Um, the, the federal classification of those, they were very interested in that. And then we're going to switch over to the exclusive interview that we have that the um, the state did about, I think it was almost six months after they interviewed all the Amherst chemists. They did an interview with uh, former chemist Annie Dukin. At that time, it was 2016. She had gotten out of prison. And for some reason, they wanted to... Um, interview her and you uh chris post you talked to um someone involved in this investigation and they said that they were not interested at all in the hinton lab is that correct yeah i mean so we'll go over this uh, as the audio unfolds but um i was able to find evidence that clearly contradicted what dukin was telling assistant attorney general thomas caldwell and when we pieced that together, I, you know, I called him up and brought it to his attention and then emailed him the supporting documents. And uh, essentially the email, I got thanks. But over the phone, uh, he said, my job wasn't to investigate the Hinton lab. And did Annie Dukin ever work at the Amherst lab? No. And you will see in the audio, like Chris said, we'll go through it, but she says that she was never even at the Amherst lab. Right. Never even visited it. Never even visited it. And so, I mean, as, as Ilias was made a great point, Ilias, do you want to talk about the bullshit point? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I, 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 um, I think when someone says something that's a complete non sequitur, it's hard to to know where to start. So do you want me to do the, the analogy? The, uh, Please do, yes. Okay, let's, a little trip down memory lane uh, for those who remember uh, the Monica Lewinsky, uh, Linda Tripp episode uh, where there was a discussion of what uh, Monica Lewinsky could extract uh, from Bill Clinton. Uh, and Monica suggested that she could maybe land a Supreme Court uh, uh, appointment. And a flabbergasted Linda Tripp uh, uh, could only muster that, Monica, you have to go to law school first. And Monica replied, well, that's fine. I'll go at night. Um, that being the least uh, of her worries to, be, uh, to get to the Supreme Court. But the point is that uh, when people respond with non sequiturs, it's hard to uh, uh, come back with all of the flaws and the reasoning. But uh, this, this thing has been so sliced up. So when we're talking about Amherst, we're not talking about Hinton. When we're talking about Hinton, we're not talking about Amherst. When we're talking about the poor management of one, we're not talking about the poor management of the other, even though the same person's in charge of both labs. Uh, and and on occasion, Ill, uh, improperly uh, obtained or prepared uh, drug standards are delivered from one lab to the other. But no one needs to ask follow-up questions about that, because why would we want to know 
um, uh, what drugs were were delivered where uh, uh, in, in a situation like this. So the 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 idea that someone would say I wasn't asked to look at something uh, in this case is the problem. Uh, the, the government has created a series of blinders and then had willing accomplices uh, 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 agree to wear those blinders, even if it re- produces absurd results. And I think we're dealing with uh, the aftermath of that. Right. And when it comes to the investigation, like when, I mean, Jim Hanchett was volunteering all kinds of interesting information about the state police drug uh, testing lab. And there were zero follow-up questions. Like, how did you know that? Who was making those uh, secondary standards from submitted drug evidence? Right. Those questions were not even asked or approached. They did. They literally did not care. Well, and and as we, uh, if if you follow the news uh, with the state police overtime scandal, um, the state police is probably good at a lot of things. But I'm just going to hazard a guess that one thing they're not good at is investigating themselves. <laughs> that's, that's not. Yeah. You know, they'll they'll nail you going 85 on the pike, but not so much somebody phoning it in for an overtime shift. Can I say they're not even good at that because I got pulled over for speeding on the pike by a state trooper and um, he didn't even write down my speed or all he wrote down was a dollar amount and didn't even sign it. And I challenge, I'm like, what do I do with this? I challenged it and they immediately threw it out. Huh, so he almost did you a favor in that way. Well, well, he got <laughs> behind me with my daughter in the car and shined a spotlight in my back uh, rear view, like literally shined his spotlight and turned his lights on into my car while I was driving. You know, probably I was probably going seventy five, but you pulled like, you over going seventy five on the pike. Yes, that's slow, huh? It, yeah, it shined a light in my back. In my like, it was very distraught. It was crazy. It was. Yeah. Yeah, I barely said a word to this guy because I was legitimately scared. But anyways, yeah, we're on yeah, tangent about the yeah, we're on, we're on a tangent. Sorry, we'll, we'll get let's let's do the Hanchin interview. Okay, you want me to dive in the first clip? Yeah, first clip of Hanchin. There we go. Hey, we're back on record. Uh, it is uh, December eleventh, two thousand fifteen. We're at the uh, office of the Attorney General in Springfield. I'm with uh, I'm Captain Steve Fennessy. It is approximately twelve forty nine. PM. Uh, I am with Tom Caldwell, and we're back on the record with Mr. Uh, Jim Hanchet. All right. The one and only. All right. <laughs> All right. So, next clip, uh, Hanchet. Okay. So, this is a classy question. Okay. Here we go. Clip two. Okay. Yeah. So, I think that's, I know you didn't really realize what the BZT. Oh, yeah. Like, but right? I know it was with methamphetamine. It's commonly with methamphetamine. Not methamphetamine, MDMA, as you say. Okay. And now, she's recorded from this letter from those just turns out to the first assistant, Michael Pelgrim. Um, were you familiar with this situation? I never heard a word about it. This classification? Nope. And um, had anyone ever asked you? You know, what class should we call this or anything like that's contained in this letter? If it was with MDMA, it would have been called a class B. If it was found alone, it was it, it would have been called a class E if it was found to exist in a PDR as an RX substance. If at one time it was used as an RX, a prescription drug, then we can legitimately call it a class E because if you listen to the rules of class E drugs, it's any other non-listed drug. 
in A, B, C, or D. So that's the only reason why we would have called BCP, BCP. Or, or another drug similar to that. Right. It must have been listed at one time as an RX. And somebody looked it up, and that's what they found, and that's why it was listed as a Class E, because that's an other. And this is something that you did and other people at the lab did? I don't recall how we found it was a Class E, but I'm, I'm assuming that's the way it was done. That's what it was done for all of them. If it was looked at an old PDR and you found it in there, or if you looked it up in the uh, Merck Index, it was listed as a prescription drug at one point. It doesn't matter how many years ago, it would still constitute a Class E. That's my understanding. Okay, but that's what they pay you guys for. We also had an alternative method. We closed our eyes and had a dartboard. Well, we threw I think, darts. I think we need to just back up and, and quickly explain, and maybe, Chris, you can do it better um, than, than I can, but, but the Class E regime, I think, is completely unfamiliar to the average person. And if they actually not only understood what it's supposed to do, but then how it's applied, I think people would be actually legitimately very worried. Class E is meant to regulate prescription drugs, i.e. a drug that Joe can obtain via prescription, but then for whatever reason, Sam has the, the drug without a prescription. Joe can have the drug. That's not illegal. Sam can't. But you have to be a prescription drug to be Class E. Right. And so forget, you know, we're not talking about marijuana, cocaine, heroin, uh, a bunch of other stuff. We're talking about drugs that for the, uh, a certain percentage of the population is important or maybe life-saving um, and necessary. Uh, and we're just saying, oh, it's, we think it's in the wrong hands. So, so like I think Percocet, Oxycodone, things like that, right, would yeah. be classy. Those, those are class B. Oh, okay. Uh, but, right, but there no. But, it could be it, it. It could literally be like someone's cap. epilepsy medicine. Right. It could okay. be some. Um, it could be uh, someone's uh, allergy medicine. I mean, uh, you know. So, so yes, some of them can be abused, but many of them can't be. And so, there's a huge, uh, I think, uh, flaw in the system, which is that it's it's so ripe for selective enforcement. Uh, I mean, and, and I don't even know how you prove you have a prescription. Are you supposed to carry the pills around in your pill bottle with your name on it? And do, does everyone do that? I don't know. Um, but putting all that aside, what Hansha just said, that if at any time it's been in the PDR, which is the physician desk reference, that uh, then it's a, it, it qualifies as a prescription drug is, is sort of ridiculous. That to me sounds like the R. Kelly defense where... <laughs> He's like, well, if any time she was 18, then it's okay. It doesn't work that way. Well, um, with BZP and Foxy, uh, which is a term for, I don't even know how to pronounce this, but 5-methyloxy and then disapropyl pyramine, something like that. Um, the issue is these are like new sort of designer drugs that came out. Uh, and because of the way that they were classifying pills, um, they just thought it was absolutely fine to call it a class E, even though um, it hadn't been a, you know, a, these are new drugs, right? So if, if their system is to look up old drugs and see if they're in some PDR and they don't find it, then they email each other and just say, we'll call it a class E. Uh, that's a problem. Right. 
And, right, and the, when you're saying you're making up laws, because that's right. not what the law says. Right. And and when you say new drug, Chris, just to clarify, uh, this is a non-approved drug, meaning somebody synthesized or or concocted BZP um, in some basement lab somewhere. Um, but no, no pharmaceutical company has obtained approval from the FDA. So there's no prescriptions for BZP. You can't ask your doctor, could I get, uh, you know, ask your doctor if BZP is right for you. That's, that doesn't happen. So what's missing is the legislature has to actually amend the statute and add BZP as a controlled substance under any of the other classes. And you can't use class E as some residual catch-all category uh, for every single substance that law enforcement thinks somebody shouldn't have, um, but unfortunately, it's not illegal otherwise. Right. They couldn't just walk away and say, okay, this isn't currently illegal in Massachusetts, therefore we're not going to charge this person for possessing this drug. They had to make up laws, including the chemists took it upon themselves, which is really the most fascinating part of this, is that they were taking it upon themselves to classify drugs that were coming in uh, falsely to right. ensure that people were sent to jail for possessing them. But j- just to back up on the, the, the absurdity of Hanchette's statement, there are drugs which are declassified in terms of prescription status. So if you think about when they come out, when the FDA approves a drug, they may approve a drug uh, and, but say that it's prescription only at a higher dose. For example, I believe high-dose ibuprofen requires a prescription, whereas low-dose ibuprofen does not require a prescription. But if you change that, change it up and say, you know what, we've, we've looked at the safety data, ibuprofen is not abused, it doesn't need a prescription anymore. Hanshet's position is because it needed a prescription in the 1950s, that's class E. That, is, that makes no sense. And, and, and I can't believe that anybody who's actually listening to what he's saying instead of just uh, hoping that this interview would come to a merciful end would not have grilled him on what he just said without knowing anything else. That right. What do you mean if it once required a prescription that it's now, it's still illegal? Well, I mean, if you want to take that logic, cocaine used to be legal, right? Back in 70, 80 years ago, heroin used to be legal. That, uh, Anyways, it, it just... Yeah. That is incredibly silly. So uh, next clip, Randy, uh, they're going to go over the email that we are go- that I can read, or if you guys have it up, we'll, we'll read it after this to say exactly what the Duke and, and Farak were saying to each other about Class E drugs. All right. So next clip. Here we go. Okay. So, Jim, I'm just going to show you this. This is another document I have, and it's an exchange of emails. Uh, these emails are between uh, Annie Khan, also known Annie as Dukum, yeah. Annie Dukum. And uh, Sonia Farak, who, who works in your lab. So mm-hmm. um, the email starts April 22. Um, and the first one is at 11.20 a.m. And it's an exchange. And it starts on this uh, Sonia writing to Annie. Oh. Um, All right. So it says, hi, Annie. Uh, this is Sonia at, all, at April 22nd, 2011. Um, right before the May breach, ironically, but this is uh, at 11.20 a.m. to Annie. Hi, Annie. I hope all is well in Boston and that your court schedule hasn't been too hectic. I'm just wondering what you guys do with BZP results. Do you report it as BZP? If so, do you report it as E or not? 
I know that it is not a prescription drug, but a while back, Cam said to call it an E. So I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure how, if at all, it falls under that class. Thanks. And then above that, Annie responded uh, 10 minutes, 11 minutes later. Hi, Sonia. This week isn't too bad, but next week looks crazy. I was in Fall River yesterday. Are you and Rebecca coming down on here on Wednesday? If so, it will be great to see you. This is interesting because when we get to the Annie Dukin interview, she acts like she's like never met this woman. Uh, as for BZP, we report it as BZP and currently call it Class E. It is a Schedule One federally, but it is not scheduled in the MGL Massachusetts General Legislature. Thanks, Annie. And then Sonia responds uh, nine minutes later. Rebecca and I are coming down next Wednesday for the training. I think I've heard that it starts at eight, but do you know when it's supposed to end? Gotta love Fall River, huh? I've been there a couple times. Rebecca actually has a case there next Tuesday. The courthouse is pretty nice and it reminds me of the federal courthouse here in Springfield. Thanks for, thanks for your BZP input. I knew that federally it was schedule one, but you know how the MGLs are with keeping up with the times. Just wanted to make sure that we are calling it the same thing as you do in Boston in case chemists from both labs are needed at the same trial. Take care. <laughs> Conspiring to... And then Annie responds, five minutes later, I have no idea when it's supposed to end. I did not even know what time it started. Fall River is very nice and there is parking and the cafes across the street is pretty good. See you next week. <laughs> so... Uh, there's a couple of issues there, but I want to start with the least important one. So we're led to believe that Sonia Farrakh at this point is probably strung out in some uh, hallway annex somewhere. And Annie Dukin is like um, uh, Lucille Ball at the chocolate uh, factory uh, running hundreds of vials through a GCMS. And yet they're not so busy and they're at their computer so that they can be essentially doing nothing but writing emails back and forth talking about completely unimportant things. So I think that context uh, is sort of important uh, in, in helping deconstruct the myth of what was going on in these two labs. Right. Um, but I'll let you guys dive into the, um, to the, the, the conspiracy, uh, the BZP conspiracy. Well, clearly they, <laughs> they were coordinating to give false testimony. They, they knew that it was not, illegal in Massachusetts, they both knew that it was scheduled uh, federally. So in federal court, if they were being charged with a federal crime, that would be different. But this was a Massachusetts state crime. So therefore, they both knew that it wasn't illegal in mass, but they were falsely calling it and they knew they were falsely calling it Class E. Uh, the right. state has known this and has never charged these two with giving false testimony, never charged anyone else or looked, as far as I know, looked into who else was giving false testimony at the time uh, for these drugs. And like, it's a very, the, the casual nature of that conversation, how they casually just like commit false testimony or, or conspire to commit false testimony is truly astounding to me. Right. There, there's, two, yeah, there's two other uh, issues. One is that it appears to have emanated from uh, uh, Cam Stevenson mm -hmm. um, in the form of an order. Uh, which doesn't appear to, uh, I mean, there's some discussion in the OIG report we'll get to about whether that was ever countermanded. 
Um, and uh, but, but it certainly was never effectively countermanded. Um, and so there was no investigation of that. Did anyone try to say, confirm that statement, which is in an email? And, and Annie didn't say, what are you talking about? Um, so yeah. so there's, there's some reason to, to, to take this uh, exchange um, uh, very seriously. But also, did you note that, and I think it was Sonia who began with um, that, what, it, she did, what was her first question? Um, her first question, it was, was about you, training. She was talking about training too, but here. It was, what are you guys doing with BZP? Um, are you um, calling it BZP? I'm just wondering what you guys do with BZP results. Do you report it as BZP? Yes. <laughs> okay. Are you reporting it? the thing as what it is? It's a very fascinating question. Yeah. Very fa- That's like someone saying to another person, are you, um, are you reporting your income to the IRS? <laughs> like all of it? What are you doing with your income? Are you reporting it to the IRS? Interesting may, question. He may just be saying when we print out the cert, we write BZP or we actually write the chemical name. So, okay. I don't wanna... but hey, it's good to have devil's advocate here. Yeah, it's, it's good. But it, uh, you, got, you, got, you got to balance it between, you know, both sides. Right. Like that. That's fine. But I, th- I still think that's an odd uh, lead in. I'm sure that that's not why she was d- driven to write an email. Um, are you using the chemical name or, you know, calling it a street name? Right. 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 <laughs> All right, so next we get into Cam Stevenson here. It's a short clip for the next one. All right, next clip. There we go. Well, see, that was my boss, Alan, who decided it was an aid. And I'm sure that's what he did. He looked it up in a book, and that's what he found it. So who was that? Alan Stevenson. He was the one who... That's why, Cam. Yeah, Cam. Why do you, why do you say that? Because oh, that's what I would have done. Looked it up in a book. So he doesn't know. <laughs> he has no idea. All right, next one. This is a long one. All right, here we go. So it wasn't, it was was scheduled as a class, you know, one under federal rule, but it wasn't never scheduled under Massachusetts rule unless it falls into the class E category, which, like I said, if somebody found an old book where it was listed as a prescription drug, and it wasn't me, don't know who he did it, it said Alan did it. Anytime I found a drug that I couldn't specifically find a prescription for an RX listing, I would attach a note to the card saying possibly controlled by the federal law, not state. That's what I would do. That's what I told the chemist to do. Anytime you found something that was possibly controlled federally, which is a lot of, a lot of stuff, you know, and you just passed those laws recently about all the other drugs that are running rampant, bath salts, so as a chemist, you would report that this was control as a schedule one drug, so to speak, federally, but right. it's not under the not, not under current and, and at that point, what would you do? That's it. Wouldn't be on a suspect analysis. It would just be a, just a note given back to the police officer. This possibly could be controlled federally. You want to you want to get a uh, conviction on this, you're gonna have to bring it to the federal uh, agency with the DEO handle it. Okay, so That's basically all we can do. But I'm sure in this case something was found out. It must have been used at one time as a drug. And that's why Sonia maybe reached out to, yeah. to Hinton. Right. Well, and also she said Cam had told Becky about that. That's that was my boss. If he would have said it, I would have you know, taken his word for it. No, he we didn't make stuff up. Okay. 
So, it's not my knowledge. No, no. So in, in, in referring to the letter, you know, and you had told me previously that you, you go to the books. Yep. And you make sure that what you're calling the books or the computer, micrometics, or the, the books as long as it's calling it an RX. In other words, you need a prescription at one time, you needed a prescription to get it, then uh, you would call it an A. So, like again, the non sequitur. Like, if it was in some old book as a prescription, then we call it a class E. And then we got all these new like bath salts and all these synthetics, so we just called it a class E because it's new. <laughs> but we didn't make stuff up, Chris. We didn't. Then, I like how we just blurts that out. We didn't make stuff up. And I'm trying to find the page in this new PDF that I, I think I've told both of you before. We just got this new document dump from the OIG, and there's 4,000 pages of transcripts. Somewhere in the Salemi transcripts, he's asked about whether or not they ever consulted uh, lawyers at DPH about this. And he's like, no, why would we do that? Like, <laughs> we were the law. <laughs> they were. That's trying to find the page. I do, I'll send it around. I, uh, just to... Um I think clear the air on whether there's any possibility that Hanchett's speculation about BZP at some point being a prescription drug, um, that's false. Yeah, uh, the edit was false in their report. Yeah, that, right. And I mean, when I say it's false, it's not a close question. I mean, this is a drug whose origins appear to have been um, um, uh, connected somehow with farm animals, I believe. Um, and while there's some discussion in journals about, you know, this could be uh, like amphetamine uh, and should be controlled, uh, it was not. It was never uh, presented to the FDA. It was never uh, controlled until 2002, and it was never subject to prescription um, status. Uh, and the feds, uh, under a, a erroneous understanding, classified it in 2002, thinking that it was eight to ten times more powerful than amphetamines when in fact, in fact, it was less potent. Um, but that, you know, laws are laws, even if they're done um, with uh, poor judgment. But um, so, so there you have it. The Massachusetts never adopted that rule. And it's, it's so to, to, to not know is, is itself alarming. Um, and, and by the way, Chris, have you ever seen, I'd be curious to see one instance where somebody wrote a note to the uh, police uh, 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 department uh, uh, related to a drug sample saying not illegal, but you know, check the fed fed rags. Have you ever seen that note? I've never seen nope. a note like that. <laughs> I'd like to see one. Uh, I wonder if the OIG or the state police ever uncovered one instance. I mean, doesn't this just call into question everything that they're doing here? Like, what are they doing? Like they, they are just a front. They're, they are a, a justification to lock people in jail. And that's what, and they have a clear mandate to do just that. And, and this, I mean, this is just baffling to me. And what, what also baffles me, guys, is the extent that the attorney general's office went to investigate this. And I don't, why? What, what's the purpose? Why did they do it? Who cares? Like they, they were never going to, charge anyone with any crime, right? They haven't charged anyone with anyone, anything for this. They've never released it to the media. They've never said, oh, we found this. So why are they investigating this? Well, and I wouldn't call it an investigation, but they're, um, 
they're asking about it. Right. Right. Why are they asking about something that they have no in, interest in actually investigating? Um, and and I, I, you know, to to get a little bit ahead, um, someone might be thinking, well, BZP, I've never heard of that. Um, how many people could possibly have been affected? Um, but I believe there's a count, uh, and and Chris, you might know, Jamie, you might know, but um, I believe it's 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 um, hundreds of people have had BZP cases um, uh, for something that was not illegal. Yep, John Verner, and it wasn't just BZP. I have the whole grid of the the state police. They asked the state police chemist when this came out in 2014. Actually, years before this, the attorney general's office knew about this and sent out John Verner, who was just in trouble for something else, uh, uh, Amherst related, uh, sent out an email who she, he was Kaz Merrick's boss and Chris Foster's boss from the, uh, the documentary there on Netflix. And they just were in court and, but he sent out an email in 2014 to every single, um, DA in the state saying, stop doing this. We, 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 it has come to our attention that you are charging people with crimes that for for possessing drugs that are not illegal, I'll I'll pull that up. I have it up, but and then he asked Kristen Sullivan, who works with who works with the state police lab, to identify exactly how many um, drugs there were, and it was hundreds, and it was across Amherst, uh, Hinton, and the state police. And that's by the way, that's a great point that um, we haven't focused on. I mean, we've been looking at the lab and the people investigating the lab, but you know, to to falsely imprison someone, it takes a village, right? You, you, there's a police officer who made the arrest. There's the drug lab employee who said this is something that it's not, or that it's class whatever, and it's not. But then there's the prosecutor, and and the, you know, I you, Hanchet can be excused for not knowing what's in the law books uh, because he's not a lawyer, right? Um, but how does the prosecutor get a pass on that one? Right. And has there been an investigation of which prosecutors have handled these cases? I mean, I would be mortified if I were a prosecutor and I prosecuted and convicted someone for something that's not illegal. I would be mortified. I know. I sent I, a literal innocent person to jail. I was working at CPCS in the Drug Lab Crisis Litigation Unit when we were trying to identify the Dukin and Farrick people, which took forever. Uh, I'm not aware of any concerted effort to find these people, notify them, and vacate their convictions. So I don't know if the DAs attempted that independently. I'd be surprised, but uh, I'm not aware of anything like that ever happening. I can tell you I contacted the AG's office and they have not. They have not. And... So here, I was going to save this, but might as well do it now. On July 13th, about uh, three or four months after um, uh, Annie Dukin and Sonia Frock had their email exchange, uh, Peter Pirro, uh, the mass spec supervisor for the Hinton Lab, sent this question to Julianne Nassif, the director of both the Hinton and the Amherst Labs for the Department of Public Health. Hi, Julie. We possibly have... MDPV, one of the bath salts. DEA diversion considers it an analog of MDEA, Schedule 1. I have three questions. One, should we be reporting federally scheduled Class 1 drugs uh, that do not appear in mass laws, i.e. BZP? 
how should we report Schedule 1 analogs, i.e. MDPV? Is this addressed anywhere in our Controlled Substances Act? The Massachusetts Class C section only mentions prescription drugs other than those included in Class A, B, C, D, and E uh, sections. Thanks, Peter. Four minutes later, Julianne Nasif responded, I would report the compounds with no legal interpretation and leave it up to the DA. And that was sent to pretty much everyone in the Hinton Lab. It was forwarded by Peter Piro to Charles Salemi, Della Saunders, Daniel Rosinski, Annie Kahn, uh, Elizabeth O'Brien, Kate Corbett, Nicole Medina, Michael Lawler, Lisa Glazer, uh, Diliana Fresca, May Tran, and uh, Z Tan. Those were all chemists that were working at the Hinton Lab at the time. So um, that's pretty clear, is it not? What, what the director of the lab wanted them to do. Well, it's, it's, um, I suppose it's clear. It's a little odd that you, I mean, this is a question I've asked and Chris, you may know the answer to this. I've always wondered if I, if I had, um, a bag of oregano in, in my pocket, um, for whatever reason, um, and someone uh, thinks it's marijuana, sends it over to the lab. Does the lab come back with a, a, a nice notarized certificate saying this is oregano? Or does it say um, this, this is, is not a controlled substance? Right, it just says negative. Negative. So why are you saying in a certificate, this is uh, BZP, uh, period? Not BZP, they were, they were saying this is BZP, comma, a class E substance. And uh, as I understand it, Na uh, Nassif is saying, just leave the, the stuff after the comma off. So this is BZP. I mean, is the, is the, are the state drug labs in the business of telling you what, what's in your pocket? Could I send them uh, an unknown substance and have them come back and say, this is, you know, epoxy? I mean, is, I, I don't really understand why. And it doesn't appear to have ever been implemented, right? Jamie, do you want to get to that point? Yeah, um, it, it, it was never implemented. I don't, I, I don't see anything anywhere saying, or I've never seen an email. I don't know if you've seen one, Chris or Ilias, uh, where people are like, are turning down DAs and saying, oh no, this, this class C substance, our director said to report it um, as federally one scheduled only and not class C. Right. Have you guys ever seen anything like that? No, and specifically in the OIG supplemental report, which interestingly, they refer to that email, but not by name of, uh, of sender and recipient, but that one chemistry sent the director uh, an email one chemist sent the director an email. I mean, suddenly now when, when things start to get very uncomfortable, um, and remember the OIG had previously concluded there's only one sole bad actor, um, now suddenly nobody has a name. Um, uh, but in any event, it says that despite that um, instruction, um, certain chemists remained unsure of how to proceed and still asked for the, for what the supervisor for what the policy was, um, and then there's no response to uh, uh, what the what the what uh, what the what Nassif's follow up uh, uh, instruction was to that, and then they said nevertheless um, uh, samples continued to be reported out. The chemists continued to certify BZP as Class E through April 2012, and again this this suggests. Um, best case for the people involved that there was a profound inability of the chemists in that lab to communicate and also to follow instructions. 
uh, to the point where I think if, uh, there, there should have been some reevaluation of them as suitable employees of the Commonwealth. Um, worst case, there was zero interest in following the law and zero interest in civil liberties and zero interest in keeping innocent people out of prison. Um, and, and the answer may lie somewhere in the middle there, but there was no investigation of this that I can tell uh, of, of who's responsible, why was this instruction apparently necessary to be repeated and still not followed. And didn't the OIG report not include Julianne Nasif's response to leave it up to the DAs? They did not include that. Uh, and I think that's a good catch that, Jamie, you made, which is um, leave it up to the DAs is a, is a, is a brilliant little masterstroke of passing the buck. Yeah. Um, well, but ultimately, I, I don't even think that is passing the buck, though. Like, they're the ones that are pushing these laws, right? I don't think like, the chemist should be interpreting these. Well, DPH has a legal department. Like, why would you not get, like, an official right. written opinion from the lawyers in your department? Right. Well, and we don't know that they, we, we, we're, not, we're not in a position to say one way or the other whether that happened, other than anything Salami might have suggested. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I guess one question I have, uh, and this segues to that email that Jamie, you found where the state police actually attempt to, uh, uh, construct a rationale for why BCP should be illegal under mass law. Um, why was there so much effort put in to clinging to something that's not illegal? You know, you have two choices. You just ignore it or you walk over to the, to, to, um, to the, uh, state house, and you try to get someone to sponsor a bill. Th those are the two choices. I don't see why suddenly everyone's concerned about what what's showing up on the streets. That's not you. You know that's not your job, right? Uh, and 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 so why was there so much effort to to cling to BZP as Class E? Uh, no one has ever explained that. No, and and, and it, with nothing to do with Annie Dukin or, or Sonia Frock. Remember that email, Jamie, that you read. It, it that goes against both narratives, right? Mm -hmm. Annie Dukin was the was the rushing chemist, but not so rushed that she couldn't sit down and thoughtfully think of how to conspire with someone else about BZP. And Sonia Farrick's a drug addict who only did stuff that helped uh, her get high. Well, that email didn't help her get high. Um, so why are that? Why are they conspiring to do something that is breaking the law? That appears to have then been blessed, if if not in 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 by instruction, by pra in practice, um, through the chain of command, makes no sense. That well, it does. It it makes no sense from how the state explained this scandal, but it makes perfect sense if you see if you look at this scandal for what it really is, and that is these chemists were used to by the state to lot as tools to help them you know, facilitate their war on drugs and what the illegality of the drugs that they were testing was beside the point. What the point was, was that everyone, 96% of the drugs that went to that lab came back as positive and people were sent to jail for them, regardless of if they were actually positive or not. The other aspect is the police funding issue, right? So if someone with BZP in their pocket also happens to have 50 bucks, 100 bucks, and loose bills, mm -hmm. police assume it's uh, part of a drug dealing enterprise. And then uh, when the person pleads guilty, they get to keep it. 
and split it with the DA's office. Right. There you go. It's a shakedown. And, and can and I tell you, I was just, um, this is a total non sequitur, but it, it does, um, it does have some relevance. I was reading a Gandhi uh, book and the one of the big sticking points between Gandhi and uh, the, the British government when he was trying to gain independence back in the 30s was um, the British government had confiscated property and money from uh, the Indian rebels, the nonviolent Indian rebels, after they locked them in jail and then subsequently resold all of that property. And Gandhi was trying to get that back for his followers and the British government refused. That was the major sticking point in their negotiations was their refusal to give up that property. Isn't that crazy? This has been going on for since the thirties or forever. It's it's, it's been going on since uh, feudalism and, and even before the Roman empire. I mean, there's the, the, the concept of tribute, uh, uh, under uh, power of coercion uh, is as old as time. And, and what, uh, uh, going back to Martha Coakley's comments, uh, um, at the Supreme court that we're behave, we're, we're criminalizing behavior and then we're allowing the money that is associated with that behavior without any proof of guilt to then be taken. And, and, and I think Chris accurately described that it's upon conviction that that money is forfeited, but has anyone ever done an audit of all the money? Uh, I know that at least in one case, when somebody asked for their money back, it wasn't there. And so I wonder if that money's already uh, uh, walking out the door uh, before there's a conviction. And as soon as you plead guilty, which majority of the people do, that money's gone. Um, and so, so th- this seems to be uh, a, 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 a giant uh, a sort of grift operation. Uh, that can't be, that is so large that no one can turn it around. And I think that's, so that's the issue. Well, um, they can, if, if the dollar amount is over a certain amount, they institute a separate civil action. But aside from that minor point, yeah. one of the reasons why this was popular in the 1990s and 2000s is because uh, municipalities could essentially increase revenue without raising taxes. Um, you know, local state governments would be able to fund their police departments without having to, um, you know, tax people appropriately in order to get the level of service that they wanted. So instead, so if you have a town that's highly affluent, um, you know, instead of making the people who are living there pay slightly more. Um, in order to um, have the police service that they want, they just uh, take whatever they can from people that, you know, in a traffic stop. Let's say someone's passing through your town and they have um, some marijuana in their glove compartment. Well, now, you know, anything in the car, up to the car is now subject to uh, civil forfeiture. There was a SCOTUS case a few years ago that was in the news where someone's, I think it was a Land Rover, uh, was seized, even though it had nothing to do with the, the crime. Um, but in any event... Um, but you needed the car to get around to commit the crime. I mean, the logic, there's no, there's no limit. Um, I, uh, uh, authorities have seized people's houses. Um, they've seized cars. Not because you, you, you use the car for drug deals, but because you, you use the car to get to a drug deal. Um, 
and any large amount of cash is is immediately um, uh, considered a proof of guilt. And which never mind that there's a large segment of this economy where people depend on cash. Uh, I mean, I don't get paid in cash, um, but if I if I were a bartender, I would be paid in cash. If mm-hmm. if if you split tips at the end of the night, you get paid in cash. The busboys get paid in cash. Um, a lot of people get paid in cash, and 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 we're sort of uh, um, uh, parasitically stripping away their cash incidental to an arrest. And and civil forfeiture uh, actions are no um, are, are no easy thing. Um, that that uh, first of all, you have to make admissions to ever get that money back. Those admissions can be used against you in a criminal proceeding. Um, the number of angles the government has to claim commingling of money or all kinds of things are, are, are very expansive. So I would say that it's very rare that someone is able to recover their money. Once yeah. the government uses it, it's very rare. By the way, that Land Rover case, if anyone's interested, is Tim's v. Indiana. But... <laughs> all right, last clip for Hanshit, then we'll move to Dukin. All right, last clip for Hanshit coming right up. Here we go. Um, okay, so Jim, I guess just one more question for you. And I, I know I kind of covered this earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of your manufacture of the standards, mm-hmm. that's just something you did yourself. Yep. Um, and I believe you told me it wasn't more told by any other person at the Department of Public Health to do it. No. no. And I asked that question before because is was it an attempt by them to save money? If they knew that you could manufacture these standards for very little cloud fact for mm-hmm. nothing at all. Yeah. I, no, I don't think so. I think this was one of my bosses who suggested that I, you know, if you can make it, why don't you make it? That way, you know, save some money ordering. And who was that? Probably Richard Westkiewicz. Richard? Richard Westkiewicz. Richard Westkiewicz? Yes. And when was he employed by the Department of Public Health? Oh, geez, probably from 60 to 2010, maybe. <laughs> okay. He's been around a while. But he... He, it's fair to say he encouraged this, if yeah. possible. But like I said, they all went to the DEA school under the old rules where you, you use your own standards to make secondary standards, and that's how it was done. Okay. And, and there was a listing of every one of them, or not every one of them, all the more common ones told you how to make them. Did you ever talk to Julian Nassif about this? About, no. About, did she ever say, hey, make the standards, no. we don't have the money? But I talked to her about it, but she never told me to make it. No. She just said basically, you know, just do what yeah, you do. Yeah. How many times do you visit the lab in Anderson? How many did you visit? I don't know, maybe twice, possibly. Not many. I told you, we weren't, uh, we we're on the far end of the earth. Okay. Uh, is there anything that you think you need to tell us that either occurred at the Amherst lab, things that you know about the Hinton Laboratory, and more specifically, things that you know or have happening at the Department of Public Health? No, the only thing I, like I said, it was a total shock with the sun. I mean, that was the only thing. I mean, it cost me my job. I, I was never a supervisor again with the state police. They just paid me to sit in the corner. Did you, you know, there's another follow-up I just um, asked. Did you ever find anything unusual at her workstation that you remember during the course of her? When I turned her in, yes. So it was everything from the, the case that she was eventually prosecuted yes. for. But, but prior to that, was there anything maybe that that was kind of unusual that she would have at her workstation? 
nothing I noticed. Becky worked right across from her. I, when I worked, I'd be on the other side, so it would have been more difficult for me to see, but I never noticed anything. Other than that fateful day. And that was when Sharon alerted you to the yep. missing, and then obviously you found everything yes. in the bag. Yep. Did the test, you immediately called her. Yep. Um, like I said, I, I would have noticed anything before, but believe me, I would have done something. Never, never put all the pieces together until it was too late. Captain Jerry, Kirk. Nothing further. This thing in shed to be treat you fairly. Yeah. On and off the record. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I just I, I, I answered these all before. I just hope, the best of my knowledge, is that they all work. All right, so thank you. Uh, the time is uh, 1.01, and we will go off the record and shut this off. Do we treat you fairly? Were we yeah, nice? That's, a, that's a, uh, I think, a, a, probably a standard question to uh, take away uh, a, a defense that someone like uh, me or, or Chris, more, more properly Chris, would would be able to deploy in a criminal trial, which is that this was all unfair and he was set up. So they ask you at uh, on the spot, uh, did we treat you unfairly knowing you're going to say no? Um, um, but um, I'm sure if you were treated unfairly, you wouldn't know it, but. You might <laughs> find out later if they charge you with something. Oh God. All right. So that was it for Jim. Jim, Jim is now, you know, was sent out to pasture and he's somewhere roaming the uh, the great north uh, the great west western part of the state <laughs> thank you for listening to the rig podcast if you enjoyed this episode make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out <laughs>